Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, radioactive waste dumps and a chat with Mark Reed. It was a busy week. Inspiring Australia's stakeholder meeting with plans for a Sydney Science Festival in August. FameLab with 10 talks at the Powerhouse Museum. Orbitoz with a talk about asteroid mining. Internet of Things. And Dorkbot. How was your week? Here's the news. Should Australia become a commercial radioactive waste dump? Instead of having that debate, the Australian government is instead merely asking who would like to be paid a large sum of cash to host the radioactive waste dump in their own backyard. The policy was released on a new government website, and I promise you this is real, www.radioactivewaste.gov.au. What's wrong? Couldn't they also afford glowing green radioactive waste dump.gov.au? Australia does not have nuclear power or nuclear weapons. All of our nuclear waste is either low level or intermediate level waste from research reactors and medical radioisotope waste from hospitals. Thus far. Some people hope to make a lot of money by getting paid to take other people's radioactive reactor waste to an Australian dump. Most countries debate whether a radioactive waste dump should be allowed within their borders at all. But not Australia. Most countries discuss that if they are to have a radioactive waste dump, that it should only be for waste generated within their own country, rather than the danger of shipping dangerous waste over the seas and through the towns to the radioactive waste dump. In fact, the International Atomic Energy Agency is quoted on the Australian government radioactivewaste.gov.au website saying... Radioactive waste should, as far as is compatible with the safety of the management of such material, be disposed of in the country in which it was generated. Yet, radioactive waste from France is shipping to Australia this year. Most countries would have a public discussion about how they're going to store this very long-term poisonous waste. Will it be deep underground with protections against the water tables moving over thousands of years? However, The Australian government have discussed none of this with the public. And on their website, they show a plan for storing the waste in concrete buildings above the ground based on a Spanish model. All they ask 
is if anyone would like to accept some money to have the waste dumped on their land. The Liberal and Labor governments did have a go at getting some Aboriginal land to host the radioactive dump. For the last seven years, they've been fighting to get Muckety Station, which is Aboriginal land in the Northern Territory, to accept becoming Australia's new radioactive dump industry for just over $12 million in payment. In 2014, the federal government lost the legal battle. There will not be a radioactive waste dump on Muckety Station. I don't know if the federal government's backing of the Western Australian state government's move to close down remote communities is part of a backup plan. Certainly, under Australia's native title laws, Aboriginal people have to be resident on their land to claim ownership. If they're pushed out by their state government switching off the water and power, and cutting off all funding, then they will have had their title to the land invalidated. Effectively, stealing their land. Maybe making it ready for a dump? Australian governments have for many years been under pressure from foreign nuclear-powered nations to open an international radioactive waste dump in Australia, under the idea that we should at least accept the waste generated from uranium that we sell, so that the nations which benefited from nuclear power don't have to pay the price of having radioactive waste around themselves. Needless to say, most Australian mines are majority owned by foreign companies. Australia will accept a shipment of high-level radioactive reactor waste from France later this year. But the mining companies don't have a place to store it for them. But they have formed a company to profit from it, the Australian Nuclear Fuel Leasing Group. In reversal of what you normally expect in the free market, the Australian Nuclear Fuel Leasing Group does the deals and relies on the Australian government to provide all the services of transport and eternal storage. France and Britain have a major problem with the storage of nuclear waste. And their solution is to pay £50 million every year to remote communities to keep them happy with storing dangerous waste forever. The one-off payment of $12 million to Muckety Station starts to look a little small. An ad appeared in the national newspaper, The Australian, from the Minister for Industry and Science, Ian McFarlane calling for people to nominate their land to host a national radioactive waste management facility, which could be anywhere in Australia that's reasonably dry. You just have to fill in the forms at radioactivewaste.gov.au to be in the running to turn that unproductive land into a glow-in-the-dark gold mine. Here's the request from the website. Are you a title holder of approximately 100 hectares of land? Have you considered nominating your land to the Australian government for a facility to manage Australia's radioactive waste? A generous payment will be offered to the landholder of the successful site identified. The Australian government will also work with the local community to develop a package of benefits for that community. The government is committed to establishing a national facility to safely store and dispose of Australia's existing and future waste. It is our responsibility to properly manage the waste created in Australia, largely as a result of medical and other scientific procedures. The Department of Industry and Science will undertake a desktop review of available national data sources in relation to the objects and criteria when evaluating the nominated sites. The government is committed to a transparent and rigorous technical, economic, social and environmental assessment and stakeholder and community engagement process. 
Australia does not produce nuclear energy or nuclear weapons and does not produce or store high-level radioactive waste. Strangely, radioactiveWaste.gov.au has no mention of the impending arrival in Australia of radioactive waste from France. Interestingly, the New South Wales State Government has changed the law to allow prospecting of both uranium and thorium in the state. I would have thought that if they've decided to have a radioactive waste dump in Australia, then the logical place to host it is Canberra, deep under Parliament House itself. Surely that's the safest place in Australia. Safe from terrorists and safe from flooding. Nobody works there for very long, so politicians and staffers will only pick up a mostly safe dose of radiation. It would be a gesture of good faith. However, the ACT Environment Minister has said that he will not permit any site in Canberra to be used for radioactive waste storage. Not in my backyard. The French radioactive waste shipment will include 28 stainless steel canisters of reprocessed waste and six cemented drums of technological waste, including gloves and protective clothing worn by French nuclear workers. More waste will be returned from Britain in 2017. The Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency say successive governments have ignored the international best practice rules that require medium-level waste to be buried several hundred metres underground. The International Atomic Energy Agency classifies low-level waste as lightly contaminated lab items, waste from a research reactor, and waste from decommissioning a research reactor. Low-level waste is dangerous for several hundred years. Intermediate-level waste is much more radioactive, such as waste from radioactive medicine production, the end pieces of fuel rods, and the residue from processing mineral sands for thorium and uranium. It contains long-lived radioactive material that will be dangerous for thousands of years and needs to be buried deep underground. High-level waste, such as spent fuel rods, are so radioactive that they give out significant heat. They need to be buried several hundred metres deep underground for 240,000 years before they'll be safe. As it happens, because the shipment from France is due by December, and not even the land has been chosen, the government will temporarily store the waste in suburban Sydney, on the Lucas Heights Nuclear Research Site, run by the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation in the Sutherland Shire. Once the waste is there, it'll be very easy for governments to get lazy about finding a remote location, which means Lucas Heights in southern Sydney could end up becoming Australia's de facto radioactive waste dump. Australia currently has over 4,000 cubic metres of low-level waste and over 600 cubic metres of intermediate-level waste in eternally temporary storage above the ground in car parks. Something better would be good. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Mark Reed is a computer scientist who works at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. He's gone from computer science to trying to simulate 
model biological systems to help biologists better understand them. Last week, you heard his talk about his research, which he gave at Ultimo Library. I spoke with Mark in the library after the talk while the cleaners moved around us. I began by asking him, how many bacteria are there in the human gut? There's a lot. So individual bacterial species, there's maybe about a thousand, more than a thousand. It changes from individual to individual. Different species of bacteria just in your gut and obviously millions, if not billions, of each of those different species as well. Sorry, numbers of any one species. So a lot, yes. <laughs> and they're different between people, aren't they? Yeah. The bacterial community in your gut is like a fingerprint. It's unique to every individual. It's more similar between, say, family members or people who live in the same house. But otherwise, it's a lot like a fingerprint. Is it something you inherit from your mother? To some extent, yes. Family members also share more similar bacterial communities. Um, but it does vary with individual as well, so it's not totally dictated by your mother. And the bacteria don't just live there, they, they do things. <laughs> yes, so they are responsible for about 10% of the energy that you take out of your food. So you eat and about 10% of that energy comes from the bacteria fermenting those foodstuffs. They can also synthesize a lot of vitamins. Humans have lost the ability to make within themselves some vitamins because they don't need those genes anymore. The bacteria can do it for them and so you don't carry around the genes you don't need to such an extent. Most bacteria are completely fine and relatively healthy to have in you. There are some bacteria that have been linked to diseases and quite a wide range of diseases are now linked to your, your gut microbes. Anything from obesity to multiple sclerosis to Parkinson's disease. There is an awful lot of interaction between your body, your immune system and your bacteria. They create lots of different molecules that interact with you, the human being. And we're finding out now that there are so many different ways those interactions are influencing your health and even your behavior. So there's actually brain signalling going on from these bacteria? It looks like that potential exists, yes. There are a lot of neurons in the gut, and I believe that's been referred to as a second brain. Um, so the bacteria could potentially be interacting with hormone systems and neuron systems within your body. And so if we wanted to change the bacteria to try and improve our health, what are the ways that the bacteria population changes in your gut? If you wanted to change the bacterial communities, what's done most often now, I believe usually to reasonable effect, if you have a serious case of dysbiosis, so your bacterial community is really not helping you out, um, you do a fecal transplant or a transpusion, I've heard it called, where you take um, literally fecal matter from one individual and put it into another individual and it's kind of like wiping the slate clean and going forward and it sounds kind of revolting but I 
there are cases where this has actually helped to cure diseases. It's not clear-cut and it's still pretty controversial, but there are definitely individual cases where that has been effective. If you wanted to do something, and this is what I'm researching, more controlled based around your diet. It's obviously like a fecal transplant is a bit objectionable to many people and kind of invasive as well. We know the diet shapes the bacteria, but the way in which it does that is really not clear. Diet is quite a complicated subject. There are different proportions of fats, carbohydrates, proteins in your diet. Things like 5-2 um, diets and periodic fasting where you maybe don't eat for a day or for a long period of time, they can kill off a lot of bacteria that would otherwise need those nutrients. Um, the energy density of your food and how much you're eating it, so that, that's things like what is the nutritional value of the food per kilogram. Some foods have an awful lot of vitamins and energy and minerals in them. Other foods are more devoid of useful, nutritious uh, substance. All of these things are your diet and all of these things can affect bacteria in ways that are not very easy to understand. That's why we're trying to simulate this stuff. The classical experimental design where you might employ different groups, um, a control group, an experimental group of maybe mice, maybe human beings, to try and look at all these different effects, these different interactions you would need so many different groups that it's pretty much impossible, if not completely impractical, to run those kind of experiments. So we're using simulations because they can quickly integrate data and you can quickly run fast experimental setups and ask for interesting answers to interesting questions, all just by running computer code. Can you tell me something about the computer code? So these simulations, do you need really fast computers? <laughs> Uh, that depends how detailed you want the simulations to be. I wouldn't say you need a supercomputer or anything like that, but unless you want to spend a whole week looking at your code churning away and your computer working rather hard, it helps to have things like clusters. These are just special facilities where they network together hundreds of computer cores and they can run things in parallel very, very quickly. Definitely helps to have access to those facilities. And the results you're getting from the simulations, how do you read the results? Are you just getting the numbers? Do you visualize them? How can you tell what your results mean? It's obviously great to be able to visualize what's going on in a simulation. It's not so obvious how you might do that for, for the gut. Um, so the simulations that I run tend to just produce numbers at the end of it and we've talked within the lab a bit about how we might visualize this stuff. It's obviously a lot easier to understand what's going on in your simulation and to sell it, actually. A big part of science is trying to sell your work now, but we haven't got as far as actually figuring out how we might do that. Look, it's easy to look at all this diet information and try and overinterpret what's there. You know, you, you hear that eating too much fat is bad for you, too much protein is bad for you, too much carbohydrates is bad for you. Balanced diet really does seem to be the answer. And if you're relatively healthy and comfortable, don't feel like you need to change anything. This is my feeling is this is definitely going to be an area of science that expands and we can expect great results in improving people's health by modulating your bacterial communities through diet. But it's a way off yet. We don't know enough 
to be able to give people general advice on this topic. So I, I would simply say, eat a balanced diet, do your exercise. If you're healthy, fit and happy, don't feel that you've got to change anything. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Mark Reed from the University of Sydney talking about simulating the interactions between gut bacteria in our body and the influence of diet. William Crow is a PhD candidate from the University of New South Wales. He's working on spacecraft swarms to investigate asteroids. He gave a talk at the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup Group at the Fishburners Startup Space in Ultimo. I spoke with him after his talk and began by asking him what is the problem he's solving. We don't really know enough about asteroids to start mining them or uh, for other reasons as well, so to know more about the early solar system, that kind of thing. So one way to get around the challenges that we've already had is to send up spacecraft swarms. So at the moment it costs around 1.4 billion euros to send up the, I think that's correct, to send up the, the current Rosetta mission. And if you had a number of spacecraft, then you could start to reduce the complexity of each one because you wouldn't need them to be as resilient and that would hopefully bring down emission costs overall. Of course, then you have to work on the problem of swarming itself. So with swarming, you're talking about spacecraft that cooperate. How many would be in swarm? That's a good question. At the moment, I'm only looking at a, a few to really start to get the basic physics working, but other people have envisaged between 100 and 1,000 spacecrafts. So that would be really small spacecraft, so femto size, and uh, there'd be a whole bunch of them. And maybe with a, a mothership, so a larger spacecraft that stays back. And yeah, using the mothership would help you get around the issues of communication between the asteroid and Earth, for example. How small is a femtocraft? Uh, it's about the size of a large computer chip. So let's say 10 by 10 by one centimeter, somewhere around there. So pretty flat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're the squares of the solar system, or rectangles of the solar system, for sure. Rectangular prisms, even. And so, how are you looking into this? What are the tools you're using? So, mainly simulation, only because we can't get into space. But there's plenty of data out there from spacecraft that have already visited asteroids, so we can start to get a picture of what would occur if you had a swarm in the vicinity. Yeah, I, I guess that's, that's probably the best way to go around things. I'm trying to visualize things as well. But yes, there, there are issues with doing that also. But it, it helps you to get your head around all the issues involved. So are there any public resources for people to look at asteroids? Absolutely. Uh, so both NASA and the ESA uh, outreach and they have heaps of different uh, tools that you can use to visualize asteroids and also to visualize missions that go to asteroids. So they've got a, a few different software tools out there that you can investigate. So the ultimate end here is asteroid mining. Uh, yeah, in my mind. Or, yeah, it, it's a good goal to work, work towards anyway because I think it's such an intangible problem at this point and we really need to get to grips what's going on there. So what sort of things will your swarm have to find out? Mm, so probably the distribution of uh, materials and... Also, the, the difficulties of uh, gravity around an asteroid. The gravity is small, but it's highly variable, so it can be problematic. And also, 
possibly the uh, seismic activities. So if something hits an asteroid, another spacecraft, for example, what would happen to a spacecraft on the other side could be one issue. And would the asteroid collapse? Um, so, yeah, th there's a few issues along those lines to look at. Would the swarms even be involved in the actual mining once everything's worked out? Yeah, they could be. I think that would be another problem to look at. It's not what I'm investigating myself, but I think it, they could be used in that manner, yeah. Anything you'd like to add? Uh, go space. <laughs> yeah, swar swarms are, are just a really good way to take a whole bunch of simple systems, uh, make them go in unison around uh, something as crazy as an asteroid, and use the complex behavior that develops to make a few good assumptions about what's going on there. Well, William Crow, thank you very much. Thank you. That was William Crow, PhD student from the University of New South Wales, discussing investigating asteroids with swarms of little spacecraft. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, gasps of amazement and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Send an email if you've got news that we should be talking about. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2XX in Canberra and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Jonathan Coulton with Bacteria. You can hear more of Jonathan Coulton on jonathancoulton.com. Bacteria. Bacteria. 
look, there's bacteria, bacteria, bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria, bacteria. Everything you touch, bacteria, bacteria. That's right, salmonella bacteria. But we have to watch out for bacteria that can spoil our chicken. Bacteria practically everywhere. Everywhere you look, in the kitchen, inside the cooler, in the dining area, in the restrooms, on our raw chicken. And like I said, bacteria, bacteria. Look, there's bacteria, bacteria, bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria, bacteria. Everything you touch, bacteria, bacteria. That's right, salmonella bacteria. Salmonella grows on raw chicken, especially old chicken. Moist foods like our salad, staph bacteria on the left, and strep bacteria on the right. Salmonella, Shigella, Clostridium refringens. If you didn't wash your hands, they would become breeding grounds for bacteria. Bacteria? Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria? You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria? Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Fever. Cramps and fever. Dysentery. Fever. Fever. Vomiting. Vomiting. Chills. Cramps. Chills. And chills in cramps. One square inch. Half a billion salmonella bacteria. These bacteria really sound serious. They are when they're left unchecked. And it could mean a trip to the hospital for someone. Our customers. Wow. Ourselves. All right. Our chicken. All right. And our reputation. All right. All right. You mean bacteria on me right now? Clean, clean, and then clean again. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Salmonella bacteria. Salmonella bacteria.